This episode is brought to you in part by Harvest House Publishers and the new book, The Good Gift of Weakness. Discover how human weakness not only allows God's strength to shine, but it was all by His design. The Good Gift of Weakness is now available wherever books are sold. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Garden Within, where the war with your emotions ends and your most powerful life begins. Written and narrated by New York Times best-selling author Dr. Anita Phillips. Available now everywhere. On the list of things that have broken my heart this week is I have no idea how to educate my children any longer for peace and pluralism and engagement. And that's what I've devoted my life to, and that's the culture of our home, and that has been sort of just a constant part of my parenting. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and I'm joined today by my colleagues Russell Moore and, a little later, Nicole Martin. Today on our show, we're going to talk about the Israel-Hamas war, what's going on on the ground, what are the prospects for peace. We'll also talk about Liberty University and a culture of concealment. And then we're going to talk about rising anti-Semitism, how it's showing up in some of these protests that have broken out since the attacks on Saturday. Stay with us. Joining us now to talk about what's happening on the ground are Chris Seipel, a senior fellow for comparative religion at the Jackson School of International Studies. Chris, welcome to The Bulletin. Thanks for having me. And Phaedra Shapiro, a specialist in Jewish-Christian relations and a fellow at the Philos Project. Phaedra is on the ground in Israel as we speak. Phaedra, welcome to The Bulletin. Thank you very much. So let me start with you, Phaedra, the day of the attacks. My wife and I have met you a number of times over the years, and one of our first thoughts was, I want to hear from Phaedra. I want to make sure she's okay. We were glad to see you posting on social media later that day. You were okay. Tell us what the last few days been. The last few days have been absolutely a nightmare. We feel a bit like zombies obsessing about the news, about our loved ones, about our soldiers, about the brutal, brutal reports coming from that day, wondering how do we parent under these kinds of circumstances. And yet at the same time, there is a very strong feeling that the nation is coming together, a nation that has been very divided recently, that we've put aside all of those differences. We see everything from, you know, ultra-Orthodox to completely secular, different segments of Israel feeling that this is not only a battle for our survival, but also a real battle between those who choose life and those who choose a path of brutality and savagery and death, and that we need to stand firm on the side of life. The fact that 300,000 troops are being activated, it's got to be just a wholesale change in the life of the whole country. What does that look like on the ground? There are entire communities where there are no men. 
because all of the fathers and over 18s have been called up and it's basically women and children. There are lots of lots of businesses that are closed because there aren't people to staff them. There are crops rotting in the fields because there's nobody to, to pick them. I just had some of my kids out picking raspberries in the Golan Heights today because all of the men, all the workers have been called up. The citizenry has come together in such a, a beautiful way. I mean, we can talk about failures of the government and we can talk about failures of the army, but the fact is the people, the citizens of Israel, that's been an absolute heartwarming success story to see everybody mobilizing immediately to do everything from, you know, making sure that displaced families have somebody to play with their kids and have clothes and have places to stay, making sandwiches, delivering food and equipment to soldiers who, you know, again, all of a sudden, 300,000 reservists are called up on Shabbat. We were completely unprepared for that, making sure that they have what they need. Even Saturday night, as soon as, uh, as soon as Shabbat was, was out, I and several other people were picking up soldiers from pickup points and taking them to base back and forth and back and forth and back and forth because there wasn't public transportation. Everybody has really, really stepped, stepped up. Hmm. Phaedra, you mentioned figuring out how to parent through this. It would be taxing and difficult under any circumstances to explain the sort of evil that we're seeing, much less when you're actually on the ground in peril. How does one parent through this? The number one thing that, you know, we really, really had to hammer home to our children, you know, especially the teenagers, is not to watch the videos, mm. not to watch the videos, to realize that that's the kind of thing that will traumatize them forever and they have no way of dealing with that i'm sorry for anything that i watch personally and i'm an i'm an adult so hmm. to stay away from those kinds of things to not be afraid to know that we are safe that the army is protecting us god is protecting us hmm. to stay positive to keep learning to keep reminding them that there is an after and they are part of the after. And so if they're not out volunteering, they need to be studying. They need to be preparing themselves that this is not forever. How do we even in a moment like this begin to think about what a pathway to peace looks like? Given the nature of the conflict, the starkness of the conflict, what does that look like? The more I've thought about this, there's an old saying, and my PhD is really in international relations and geopolitics besides being a follower of Jesus. So I kind of think about both and expect God to be sovereign over both. But there's an old saying from Liddell Hart that you should wage war with constant regard for the peace that you seek. And the statement from the patriarchs in Jerusalem is from 1 Corinthians, I think it was 1433 or something like that. Our God is not a God of disorder, but of order and peace. And what we can pray for is discernment in conducting the war, but discernment in what does the peace look like? And that's going to take some time to think about. I was emailing with my friend Uriel Simonson from Haifa University. He has a laboratory for religious studies there which is basically about pluralism. And pluralism is about engaged, positive difference. 
And he says, we don't even know how to comprehend what has been taking place, but now is the time to think about a strategy for healing. And so the way that I would maybe try to put that in a single sentence and answer your question directly is, this is the time for the end of Hamas, and this is the time for a start of a Palestinian state. We have to think about both simultaneously. And we have to think about what it means to be at peace and we have to think about how we wage the war so that the peace results. It's so interesting we're observing a conflict between a Jewish state and really, I mean, if we understand Hamas for what it is, it is an Islamist terror organization that has declared this war, that has initiated this war. And so for me, I was 21 years old when 9-11 happened, and that conversation has so shaped the last few decades. And maybe it's faded a bit in the last decade or so from memory. But nonetheless, here we are again, having this conversation about a conflict where religion really is, if not the cause, but certainly one of the sort of central factors in the conflict. Russell, when Christians are, are looking at this and trying to understand those tensions and trying to understand the differences and the commonalities how do you counsel them? Well, I've learned a lot over the last 24 hours from some Jewish rabbi friends here in the States who are going without sleep because the members of their synagogue, one rabbi said, everybody here knows someone who was either killed or is in immediate peril. And so there's a lot of emotional work going into that. But he also said the other thing that he had to do, there's a mosque that actually meets in their building on Friday evenings, and to communicate this is not a war against Muslims, and that Hamas is a threat not only to Israelis, but also to Muslims of goodwill, and to communicate that he understands that, and the synagogue does understand that. And I think the Israeli government has communicated that well so far. I think the United States government has communicated that well so far. But we have to keep reminding ourselves of that so that we don't see the kind of reflexive sense of hostility toward our Muslim neighbors who are just as outraged by this as we are. Phaedra, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. I mean, obviously, you're, you come at this from a different religious perspective. What do you think that Christians maybe don't understand about the conflict or don't understand about the Israeli or the Jewish perspective on what's happening right now? Okay, so I don't know if this is a particularly Jewish or Israeli perspective. Um, I just think it's really important in the terms of this conversation that we're having now. I think it's it's really important to note that I have had Arab friends check in on me. I've had Arab friends in the, in the West Bank check in on me and tell me that they themselves are very frightened because they don't have shelters. The PA has not built shelters for them from gas and rockets. I see Arabs and Israelis, uh, I mean, I saw it in the last couple of days, just on the street, as always, talking, even hugging. I've seen Arabs in line to donate blood to help heal the wounded. This is not some kind of Arab-Israeli conflict. It's not particularly about Judaism and Islam or anything like that. 
I mean, I think we also need to think about this as a war to liberate Palestinians from the yoke of Hamas, that they deserve better. They deserve a flourishing future, and Hamas is not the path to that. I think that's remarkably well put. Chris, how does a path to peace look radically different today than it did a week ago? You referenced 9-11, and people are saying this is Israel's 9-11. It's not a good comparison because our 9-11 was an operational threat. This attack is an existential threat, completely different. And Hamas has declared that they seek the eradication of Israel and the Jews since 1988. So Hamas has to be ended. The question is, how do you do that? such that you don't make the situation worse, which the Americans have some experience with and how we handled the wars after 9-11. The giant elephant in the room is Iran. Hamas could not have done this without them. There are different reports on whether they had approval or not, they were surprised or not, but they gave them 700 million bucks a year. They also support Hezbollah. And because we did not address it in the nuclear deal with President Obama, the Shia militias under Iranian control and the Revolutionary Guard terrorize northern Iraq as well. So that is, in military speak, Clausewitzian speak, the center of gravity. Right. And we have to decide what we're going to do about that. And my own opinion here is that there is a tremendous opportunity for a comprehensive peace working with Saudi, the homeland of Mecca and Israel to recover what was being discussed by the President Biden and Saudi and Israel and others in this moment. But there has to be some repercussions with Iran, and then Hamas has to be moved. And going into Gaza may not be the answer. There's a pretty good chance Gaza could be a trap. Hmm. That's why you saw the videos. That was all intentional, to bring out emotion. They want an attack. That may not be the best thing. You have to get the hostages out as well, which is also about special operations. So there's a lot that has to be thought through here. Mm -hmm. And there is, I think, the potential for the Israel to take the same approach they took during the first Gulf War. Remember, they refrained from attacking after the Scuds. There's going to have to be some feign and refrain. Feign attacks here and there and refrain because there's a larger context here of which Iran is, is a very important part. Yeah. And we have to think that through together as allies. So that's the discern the war piece. But then you have to discern the peace that follows. And if you can have a peace where Palestinians are liberated from Hamas and they have their own place for real, and that's another conversation, mm -hmm. but for real, then there's an opportunity for peace here. And for Bibi, Prime Minister Netanyahu, to truly have a legacy, because I think that's what motivates him most. And for now, this happened on his watch, and he needs to recover, and there is points of leverage in that acknowledgement. Chris, that's going to take the entire world, the Western order, and we have seen that we have a very short attention span. Right now, everybody's focused on Israel. How do you see that waning in a way that could be harmful here? Well, yeah, there's strength and weakness to all of these things. I mean, they attack because Israel's government is weak, our government is weak, in terms of divided. Mm -hmm. And they, they were threatened by this deal. But if there is a capacity to build upon the Abrahamic Accords here, which was important not so much for what it represented, but what it revealed about the past, that these 
people were already working together, sharing intelligence about Iran. If we can build on that precedent and work together, then I think we can sustain it. It can be an opportunity for all governments to unite and talk about doing good in the world by eradicating Hamas. But that takes some serious leadership. And to be honest, I haven't seen it in either country. You know, just on a extremely simple, kind of on the ground level, utterly not geopolitical, but on the list of things that have broken my heart this week is I have no idea how to educate my children any longer for peace and pluralism and engagement. And that's what I've devoted my life to. And that's the culture of our home. And that has been sort of just a constant part of my parenting. It's impossible for me to imagine now the kind of deep trauma of a generation now who, if you speak to them about peace, if you speak to them about engagement, how can they take that seriously? It's the reality has been so shocking and so impossible to swallow that, at least for me, there's a feeling of how do we make that peace-building mission actually a plausible one for Israelis again. If I could add something there, Mike, there are models. Hardwired is a American NGO that has worked on the Nineveh Plain in northern Iraq, and they have worked at the invitation of the Iraqi government and the governor of Mosul to address this issue of post-ISIS, where children have seen beheadings and how to integrate into a classroom. This, their work of Hardwired is about to be, this month, I think, be the subject of a PBS show called The Good Road. And what they do, in a nutshell, is another conversation, but they let the children role play. They're in a garden, or they're, they're a fruit, and what happens when there's only one fruit left? They find ways to express themselves and to draw these things out. There are models for this from the region that can work. But your point, Phaedra, is imperative. Trauma is a transgenerational thing. The Jews know this better than anybody, but so do the Kurds and so do the Christians, going back to the Armenian genocide of the Greeks and the Assyrians and the Orthodox. So we have to find a way to do this, and we have to find a way to talk about trauma and moral injury. That is a critically important piece of this that I think a lot of people aren't thinking about right now. And Russell, to your point, that is where attention wanes. Yeah. We want to win. We'll be in it for the win. That could be whatever amount of time, but nobody wants to do the aftermath. Nobody wants to do the hard work of reconciliation. Nobody wants to fund that. Mm -hmm. That's too complicated. We'll help defeat the bad guys and declare victory and walk away. That's what great powers do. And it has to be different this time. And that will take everybody to include churches, mosques, and synagogues in America keeping their congressmen with their toes to the fire. Mm-hmm. The Palestinians have suffered for a long time, but most from a lack of leadership. And that has to be addressed, but that can be a part of an overall peace process if Saudi Arabia is saying it's okay. That's a different kind of conversation than, than anything else in the past. Well, there's so much before us, there's so much particularly before you, Phaedra. I know you're in mine and Sarah's prayers and your family as well. Before we go, could you tell our listeners how specifically they could be praying for you? I mean, wow. I mean, first of all, to 
find a list of the kidnappees, find a list of the names of the hostages and pray with their names in front of you. I think that's that's first and foremost. It's been five days. I can't even imagine what their conditions are like. But pray for the displaced families, the people who've lost their mothers, their babies, their grandparents, their homes, their livelihoods. Pray for our soldiers and for all of their parents. There is no lack of what to pray for in this situation. And please also pray that this kind of terrible situation, this war, this brutality does not make us brutal, does not make us forget that the actual goal is peace. Hmm. That's well said. Phaedra Shapiro, Chris Seipel, thank you for joining us. We will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. Hi, I'm Charlie Peacock, and if you're enjoying this show, I think you'd love Music and Meaning, a podcast where we go in-depth into the world of music, sharing evocative stories of crafting popular songs the whole world sings. We explore how music transcends mere sound, becoming a mirror to our times, a testimony to our shared humanity, and a sign and symbol of our deepest joys and needs. Join us and listen to Music and Meaning on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. All right, joining us now is Nicole Martin. Nicole, welcome back. Thank you so much. So last week, the Washington Post published a story about Clary Act compliance with regard to Liberty University. The Clary Act is basically the laws that govern compliance with safety issues on campus. And the story and the report that it was referencing were pretty devastating with regard to Liberty. They accounted for a failure to report criminal activity, failure to report dangers like gas leaks and bomb threats confirmed the accounts of a number of sexual abuse and assault victims that their crimes were either unreported or underreported or covered up. This is the single most blistering Clary report I have ever read, ever, said S. Daniel Carter, a campus safety consultant who reviewed a copy of the initial report obtained by the Post. Also among the number of allegations in this report is this from the story, quote, the report cites a numbered Liberty University Police Department incident that the school did not enter into the daily crime log, quote, an alleged rape that was committed by a former Liberty president, unquote. The report goes on and on, erased hard drives, failure to report. It kind of reminds you of that classic quote that the cover-up is often worse than the crime. I'm not sure that's entirely true because these crimes are horrible as well. What does this tell us about Liberty University, the Liberty Way? So first of all, it is sad that these types of allegations are not shocking. The lack of shock in and of itself 
is an indication of a problem. This is not new news for liberty. We have seen allegations of cover-up in the past. What feels new about this one is the extent to which we learn about the cover-ups. This was not a one-time a student stole something from another student. This is violent. This is sexual. This is identity. This is about messing with the identity of the school, of the students, and of the culture. And for me, it begs the question, what kind of theology are we teaching that makes Christians think it's okay to cover and conceal? And then the next step of that is, what theology would cause a leader to not take accountability for things that happen under their aim? So I've been wrestling with that. Russell, I know you've wrestled a lot with this idea of concealment culture. It's troublesome, but I think it's troublesome because of the roots of why this happens. Yeah, you know, there was a Liberty student who came to see me at the Atlantic Festival in Washington afterward the other day. And it just reminded me, I mean, there are so many outstanding students at Liberty, so many outstanding alums out there in the world who deserve better than this, who are better than this. But I think a lot of it has to do with the general culture of thinking there has to be an image projected of success and triumph. I mean, you, mm-hmm. just, you just think about the way that Christian institutions generally are expected to come out and say, we're the best place, we have rocket enrollment, we have this and this, and anything else than that is not acceptable. Well, when you add that then to a secrecy sort of culture that is able to talk itself into saying, we're actually helping the institution by covering these things up because what we're doing is so important that if we don't, that will jeopardize what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And so that's really easy for people to talk themselves into. And what I've seen in a lot of these institutions, I don't know about Liberty, but in a lot of institutions, what happens is it's not that people sit down and say, here is this that has happened, let's make it secret and cover it up. Mm -hmm. It's that you have almost a reflexive habit where people start to just filter out information and are able to talk themselves into cover-up without even consciously knowing that they're doing it. And, and that's even worse because it's been so ingrained. Yeah, I've come to think of this as the Blues Brothers theory of Christian corruption. <laughs> you know, the Blues Brothers in the movie, they, they destroy half of Chicago on the way to put the band back together and throw a concert that's going to save the Catholic school that they grew up in. And they justify everything by saying, you know, we're on a mission from God. And, you know, that's a powerful way to justify anything. If you think the kingdom of God is dependent upon me and my institution succeeding then you can justify all kinds of cover-up, especially, because it makes you go, well, man, if this got out, it would really hurt our reputation. People would really think poorly of us and think poorly of the church, and maybe they wouldn't believe the gospel, and people would go to hell, and it would be all our fault, which Mm -hmm. translates into it would be the fault of the truth-tellers who have experienced these horrible things that we are trying to now silence in order to not, quote, hurt the witness of the church. And the crazy thing about that is it's not only morally wrong, it it also doesn't work on its own terms. Even if one took the judgment seat of Christ and basic Christian morality out of the picture, this kind of 
cover-up never stays covered up, first of all. And when it's revealed, the credibility crisis is exponentially worse. And then people wonder, what else is there that we don't know about? And so it's even self-defeating, as sin always is, but it's immediately self-defeating. And it, it hearkens to some of the challenges that we see with reports of domestic violence and sexual abuse in Christian churches as well. Mm-hmm. So you have this sense that faith leads you to a false sense of risk and reward. Because I'm a Christian, I don't want to risk coming out about what happened to me because I don't want to hurt the man that did it, or I don't want to hurt the the person in charge, or I don't want to hurt the institution. So there's a false sense that that risk is too high. And the reward of me stuffing it in is that my institution, that person, that group gets to thrive. And then what happens is not only is there injury to the individual, but then there's injury to everybody else that's experienced the same thing. It is riskier for you to hide the truth than it is for you to speak it. There's greater reward for you to tell the truth and bring to light things that happen, even if there's a threat of a lawsuit, even if there's a threat of being blacklisted or being expelled from a class or being, you know, named as a target for somebody who's trying to overturn the system. The reward for that is better than the risk of keeping it in. And as a parent, if you look at Christian institutions that have had awful things happen and they have immediately come forward and said, this has happened and this is how we're dealing with it, that actually gives you a greater sense of confidence in that college or university or institution because you can see the way that they're taking these things seriously. And the other part of it, Nicole, that you implied here, one of the things we're going to have to deal with somehow is the weaponization of lawsuits against victims. And so you have people who in, I don't know about at Liberty, but at multiple different places who when they come forward and say, this is what's happened to me, or this is what's happened to someone I know, then they're immediately shut down and, and with a lawsuit that's not going to win, probably. But the people who are filing this lawsuit, no, it doesn't matter if it wins, if they win. It just matters that they sap every bit of emotional and spiritual energy and money in having to defend oneself and then to relive the crime and the trauma over and over again. And then that furthers these institutions who start listening to their lawyers exclusively to say, oh, in order to protect yourself from lawsuits, you have to do this, that, and the other. It ends up sacrificing morality. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I remember David French saying a while back that I think is so important. He said, a lawyer's job is to protect an institution, and that is not the same thing as a Christian's job to do the right thing. It's kind of like when you're president of the United States, the Defense Department is going to come to you with war plans. This is how we we can fight this war. They're counting on there being a State Department and other countervailing sort of arguments to say, here's, here's what, why we ought not to do that, or, or here's another way that we can do that. Our job is to tell you if you're going to fight, how to fight. Lawyers, even good lawyers, that's what they're doing, and they're counting on there being people there who are also coming in with saying, we're not just worried about the law, we're also worried about what's right before Christ. I think the anxiety over consequences 
is such a big part of it because the institution says, well, we don't want to face consequences. Mm -hmm. But but consequences are often just, right? Like payouts to victims who have suffered because of malpractice or you know, whatever the, whatever the issue is, like that's often a cause of justice. And when the institution has failed, you should feel good about making that right, whatever that ultimately looks like. But again, like the fear of consequences, I think it so often attaches to, well, if we admit we did something wrong, we're going to hurt the mission. You know, we're going to hurt the mission of the institution because it hurts the testimony of the institution. So let's do it as quietly and as much in the dark as possible, which just always causes these things to fester and make it worse. And it also causes a suppression of one's own belief in what Jesus has told us. I mean, if we really believe that we will give an account the before the judgment seat of Christ, that as Jesus said, nothing that is covered will stay covered, nothing that is in darkness will not be brought to light, then you've got a longer term view of consequences than just, can I get away with this right now? That's right. Mm -hmm. And you have to reevaluate the power plays that are happening as well. So you have a victim of a crime that is often told you don't want to go against the institution. Why? Because the institution is more powerful than you are. They have better lawyers. They have better money. They will make sure that they win this. So being able to speak up about injustice, about crimes, requires the right view of power. That power does not come from the institution. It comes from God. It is almost laughable that institutions like Liberty don't see if you report crime and report what you did about it, it raises your credentials. It raises the trust factor. You might actually get more families to invest in you. You might actually have more quote unquote power in that sense when you name what is wrong and state the way that you're taking care of it. But for some reason, we've got this distorted view that power also means protecting of the brand, which also means we can never do anything wrong. Every college recruiting uh, brochure for any institution of of any sort is this idyllic picture of uh, (laughs) students uh, sitting around under a tree, and and you you feel like you have to maintain that picture for everyone, and that's just not the Christian way. Mm -mm. I mean, I think there's an element of it that's almost ideological, like this idea that we've got the gospel right, we've got morality right, we've got these things right, and so that stuff doesn't happen here. Right. Like Mm -hmm. that is, I I mean, I think that is genuinely those images. I get it. It's marketing, whatever. But like there's something pernicious about the way we sort of portray ourselves to the world. I think the church wrestles with the exact same thing. No, these these things don't happen here because here we get these things right. And so if we have to sort of manage facts in that Orwellian sense, you know, manage the truth of what happened and what didn't happen by trying to suppress things and cover things up. Oftentimes that's in service, not just of an image, but genuinely in service of a kind of ideology that says to use the liberty way, like the liberty way is the right way. And and of course we can't report that because those things don't actually happen here. You know, I really hope that liberty responds to this in the right way. And and I think they can, because it is such an important institution in world Christianity and American Christianity with some, as I said before, some really impressive and amazing students. If they get this right, it could be an opportunity to be a model for everyone else. And the grace in this is, even if it takes another layer of administration or another tenure 
to recognize the wrong and get it right, there's still room for growth. I'm thinking about Wheaton and the report on the ways that they've treated students of color in the past. So there's an argument to be made to say it has to be corrected right now. Absolutely. And even if you recognize, after reading through the annals of time, that the ills were done beyond your tenure, this is where responsibility comes in. I wasn't in charge at that time, but we are heartily sorry for what happened, and here are the steps we're taking to make sure it never happens again. Yeah. Well put. All right, we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Our Daily Bread Ministries, a global media organization that makes the life-changing wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to all. As a part of that mission, Where You're From is a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us on each episode as we ask another Christian thought leader, Where You're From, and discover how their life experiences and expertise even if we may disagree with something they say, offers us important perspectives worth thinking about. To see our list of guests, visit whereyou'refrom.org today. That's where, Y-A, from.org. I'm Russell Berry, reminding you that it's not just about where you're at, but it's also about where you're from. We are back and talking about rising domestic anti-Semitism on college campuses. There are a number of reports that have talked about this rising tension, specifically on college campuses. The Hill talked about students reacting to the Israeli-Hamas war, specifically stating that, quote, more than 30 student groups at Harvard released a statement after the attack saying that Israel was, quote, entirely responsible for all unfolding violence, unquote, and that the University of UVA students, Students for Justice in Palestine, also said that Hamas's actions, while leaving hundreds of Israeli citizens dead, represented a step toward a free Palestine. The president of Harvard did respond, stating that students don't speak for the entire school, but those conversations on campus are still continuing. Hill also reported that Jewish Tufts University students remarked that the environment is scarier on campus because of the hostility that exists beneath the surface. Columbia University students also talked about how the Hamas atrocities were justified. It goes on with UPenn and Princeton and so many others. So all of these conversations really beg the question, what is happening on college campuses? What is unique about these environments that make it easy for students to have either a both-and approach, a middle approach, or an explicitly anti-Semitic approach to something that is clearly evil? What is happening? Well, I mean, I think there's no getting around the role that anti-Semitism plays in this. When I hear language and people talk about colonization, and they talk about people, you know, being usurpers on the land and aliens in the land and all the sort of protest language that's very common to the sort of pro-Palestine movement. All of it to me harkens back to language that's 150 years old that was used about Jews living in Europe in the 19th and early 20th century. And so to me, there's such danger in that kind of dehumanization 
And there's no coincidence in the fact that historically that gets applied to Jews again and again and again and again. Russell, you've written about anti-Semitism before. You've called it a demonic force in the world. I think that is absolutely true. I think there are spiritual reasons for it as well as political and social reasons for it. But there's no avoiding that fact in the midst of it. We have 1,200 dead Israelis. The vast majority of them were Jews. And on a flyer for uh, an event at the University of Louisville, it's going on right now as we record, the flyer calling people to come and protest on behalf of Palestine has images of paragliders on it. The very people who flew into this music festival and murdered 260 innocent people. It's disgusting. I have conflicts of interest in saying this because he's a friend and we've been in lots of foxholes together, but I'll say it anyway. Thank God for Ben Sass at the University of Florida, who, as I think it was Noah Pollack pointed out, the contrast between the committee-driven word salad sort of responses (laughs) from the Ivy League universities with his coming out forthrightly and speaking of morality and justice and anti-Semitism and so forth is refreshing. But then you add to, I mean, there are a few things in my life that I look back and say, you know, I used to think this was true, but it's, but it's not. But one of those things that is not the case of that is the horseshoe theory that the wacko left and the wacko right eventually converge. And and that's what, you know, just as we saw Charlottesville with uh, people chanting, Jews will not replace us, now we see these far-left students, and not just students, I mean the Democratic Socialists of America, as you pointed out in your article this week, Mike, chanting things like, from the river to the sea, which is language meaning the utter destruction of Israel. And so that is not, I don't care how much, you know, David Frum said this week, you've got universities that will put out a statement immediately when somebody wears a sombrero to a fraternity party, but will say nothing about the fact or nothing clearly about the fact that murdering babies and grandmothers is wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not, that's not social justice, That's just a question of whose power is going to win out in a Nietzschean sort of way, and it ends up affirming the worst sort of bloodshed imaginable. And I think some of it has to do also with the fact that you have privileged students who completely have no threat to themselves. It's really easy to prance around Harvard Yard valorizing (laughs) terrorist paragliders when you're not going to face that yourself. And it gives the ability to just metastasize into awful, awful stuff. And what that requires, just as it requires with white supremacy and white nationalism and the alt-right, requires conservative, rational actors to stand up and say, no, you don't speak for us. This requires the pro-Israel or anti-terrorist left to stand up and say, no, this doesn't speak for us. That's happening in a lot of places, but it's not happening in academia. 
And that's where it needs to take place. I think it's important for us to unpack the idea of justice and how much of this is ignorance because I just want to get on the justice bandwagon and how much of this is willful anti-Semitism. So you talked a little bit about this victim mentality. And I've even in talking to friends, there is a sense that, well, as Christians, we need to side with the victim and the true victims, the ones without power in this case, are the Palestinians. But we also have seen how false victim mentality can be applied in wrong ways, making people who are not the victims, victims. It is absolutely true that the people of Palestine are suffering from an enormous amount of injustice. And some of that's at the hands of Israel. I mean, I think there is a case to be made that many of the problems that people in Gaza and the West Bank are face, they have suffered injustices because of some of the policies of Israel. There's an argument to be made there. That has nothing to do with this conversation. That has nothing to do with what happened on Saturday. To link the suffering of the Palestinian people into the events of Saturday in such a way that you end up celebrating the murders on Saturday is an absolute disgrace to the Palestinian people. It's an injustice to them to apply that to them. Because frankly, one of the primary reasons the Palestinians in Gaza live under horrific conditions day to day is because they're ruled by Hamas, a terrorist organization whose leaders live in Qatar and use them as pawns in a political game. And the leaders of Hamas are happy to let the citizens of Gaza suffer and die because it plays to their political ends on another side. So to me, like, yeah, I I totally think the power dynamic is a real thing. There's no doubt that there's a power differential between what the people of Israel experience day to day and the people of Palestine experience day to day. But let's not lose sight of how those conditions were put in place. Let's also not lose sight of the power differential between Israel and everyone around them, Mm -hmm. every state around them. The fact that this isn't a difficult moral question raises the fact that we are very quick to simplify something that is actually quite complex. So when you think about college students, they're trying to simplify issues of justice in a situation that's quite complex. I've even seen in some black churches, there's a sense that, well, we can't be for justice on one thing and not be for justice on other things. Well, you've got to do your research so that you know what real justice, biblical justice looks like, because we do need to stand up for justice, but we need to understand what that looks like in this situation. The heroes of history the heroes who stood against injustice in history, all across global history, I won't name names, anyone that you think of is someone who faced oppression and in, in the face of the oppression refused to become barbaric. Yes, I mean, that's, that's right. That's the that's beauty right. of the civil rights movement in America. And, and so I, I think there's just a glorification, a fetishization of violence in all of this, what, you know, when you watch some of the things that were happening at the rallies on Sunday, when people were cheering the rockets and the gliders and the, you know, all of this stuff, it's just gross and it's just sad. The other thing you kind of touched on this, Nicole, and I, I think it's worth saying as well, like the element of race in all of this is one of those complicating factors in the sense that people often view this conflict with an oversimplified understanding of yes. race. Yes, very and, much so. And oftentimes it, it's, again, it's this idea of oppressed and oppressor, these oversimplified categories. And 
And, you know, you hear it all the time. And I hear my Jewish friends respond to it all the time. You know, this idea that Israeli, there are these, you know, the white oppressors and the Palestinians are the brown oppressed people. And my Jewish friends go, in 99% of the world's categorizations, we're not white. <laughs> like, white supremacists don't like us. Yeah. And, and you get into the, like, you just get into the weeds even of the makeup of Israel. Like, the majority of Israel's Jews are not European Jews. The majority mm. are Sephardic, which means that they originate from the Middle East and, and Africa. So these sort of flattened, very Americanized very simplified categories for even thinking about race in the conversation yeah. is totally distorting of the reality. Who might be responsible for this type of thinking? Is it the campus environment itself that lends itself to creating a culture of leftist thinking? Is there something else happening on a college campus that makes it possible to see this trend at Columbia, at UPenn, at Harvard? Who's responsible? You have to blame politicians, just for a certain extent for this. I am not one who's fond of this phenomenon where people track like it's been three days and so-and-so yeah. hasn't tweeted about this or that. Or the other. I think that stuff is gross. And I, I normally find it kind of kind of repulsive. Or, or when you're chasing a, a politician through a hallway and yelling questions at him, why won't they answer this? However, Rashida Tlaib was followed through the hallway by a reporter and asked six times if she had any comment on the mutilation of babies that was discovered on Monday at a kibbutz in, in Israel. And she refused to comment. There was a report that for a time, I don't know if it's still true, there's a report that for a time amongst the artifacts in her office was a Hamas flag. She has made pro-Hamas statements in the past. She made a statement Russell has already commented on earlier this week that was despicable. To me, when you have politicians like that who are setting a tone and setting a standard for the conversation that's permission giving to these yes. organizations that yeah. won't simply call them out for their corruption and their violence – that sets a tone for young people, for sure. Well, it also is the case in academia where you don't have a counterbalance. I mean, at any place where there is uh, one ideological viewpoint, then what inevitably happens is you have that ideological viewpoint and then a more extreme form of that ideological viewpoint. Rather than having the push and the pull of the free flow of ideas going back and forth, that's inevitably what happens. And it's certainly happening in certain sectors of academia. What do you see, Nicole? I'm a little conflicted. CT did a wonderful article many years ago, it was like 2007, making the argument that secular universities don't make kids more secular. And what I appreciated about it was this idea that you can't just blame the environment for shaping the mindset of the students there. Yeah. You have to look at how they got to that school and the factors that were feeding into them. So, you know, when you think about who's responsible, I think you have to go to churches, you have to go to youth ministers, you have to go to parents, you have to go to the spaces that help to shape the minds of students before they get to the college campus. So, you know, whether it is a student from an upper class family that feels like we all went to Harvard and so you need to go to Harvard, there's a thinking in there, an elitism, that lends itself to being more 
convicted, shall we say, or feeling more guilty when issues of power come up because they feel like, well, because of my power, I have to lean toward the powerless. That's one element. But I also think there's something in the ground that shapes our politics and the merging of politics and theologies that happens before we get on campus. And I go back to just some really disturbing pieces I've seen in some Black church justice spaces that say, if you are for us, you must be for Palestine. So there's an unnecessary kind of mixing of justice issues that says the only way that educated people can stand for justice is by standing against Israel. And I keep thinking, what impacts that environment? I think it's the church, I think it's the family, and I think it's the community. And I do wonder, so if, if these are the causes, then how in the world are we supposed to change that besides everyone needs to hire Russell Moore as an adjunct professor? <laughs> like, how do we balance those views? There's very little incentive for Princeton to say, well, now let's go ahead and hire a few professors that don't think like us. What incentive do they have to even balance an ideology that makes them feel good about themselves? Well, part of it is often there are people who have balancing views on those faculties and they won't stand up and say it. And so if you don't have people who are willing to come out of the timidity and say, Here, here's what I think, and they're cringing in fear, there's just so much power that happens when one person stands forward and says, no, this is not where we're going to go. That enables other people to, to come along. And then honestly, we need to keep in mind here, we live in a world governed, Paul says, by the prince of the power of this air. There are dark spiritual forces that hate the Jewish people. And that has been the case all the way back to Pharaoh. And we have to recognize that as well. One of my favorite stories that came out of the Second World War is what happened with Denmark when the Nazis annexed Denmark and demanded their Jews. Essentially, every time they had taken over a country and put the laws in place, you know, first they have to wear the star, this, that, and the other. It was kind of a series of steps. Every time they had done it, there had been just compliance across the board. And they get to Denmark, and they left the king of Denmark in place as sort of a emeritus position. I don't know what you'd call it. But he didn't really have any power, except that he was kind of the figurehead for the government. And so it came time where they wanted to start rounding up their Jews and shipping them east to the camps. And they came in and told them that they were about to start doing this. And he goes, no, we're not going to do it. They're, you know, and no one had ever done it before. And it's hilarious in a sense because you, you can actually follow in the bureaucracy because, you know, the Germans kept these incredible records of sort of the communication going back to Berlin going, the king of Denmark said no. <laughs> and, the, you know, and, and so then they send a note back and it takes a week or so and the letter comes back and says, no, you can't say no. You're not allowed to do this. And, and he says, no, actually, there are Jews and I'm still in charge. We're not going to give them to you. So again, another week, two weeks goes by as the, the communications go back and forth. Well, meanwhile... He and the other government officials in Denmark coordinate a civilian process. I think they helped about 100,000 Jews who lived in Denmark escape the country by sea to other places that hadn't been, been annexed yet. And it's just a remarkable story. It's one of the few stories, one of the only stories really of resistance in the Second World War to the final solution. What I love about it is that it's so simple. Mm -hmm. They just said, no. Like they just thought mm -hmm. about it for a second and said, 
no, we're just not going to do it. And I think that speaks to the tyranny of bad ideas and terrible ideas yeah. is that they, they, they dominate our imagination. And, and so we don't speak up when people are saying and doing terrible things. We take for granted that when somebody says this is a justice issue, we must be wrong. It must be a justice issue. Clearly, Israel did something to deserve this. We don't think about these things, and we don't take the simple moral step of going, I don't think so. No, we're not going to do it. I'm not going to go there with you. I was reading a sermon this week from a confessing church activist who stood against the Nazis, who was an evangelist and was doing, giving a sermon in the late 40s, early 50s, and he was talking about hell. And he said, a lot of you are saying, oh, we're too sophisticated to believe in hell. There's no such thing as hell. And he said, you're the same people who let a little Fuhrer uh, convince you that uh, two and 20 are the same thing. Do you really trust your own <laughs> intuitions when it comes to this? <laughs> Just want to say, you go. This is, uh, we, we, we could use some Cory Tin booms again. Well, thank you both for the very insightful pieces that you've written on this, the courage that it takes to write. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced by Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Post-production by TJ Hester. Our art for this episode is by Rick Shooks. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening.